if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be over in Exodus chapter 12, verse 31. 31. You can follow along on the Version Bible app. And uh, while you're turning over to Exodus chapter 12, it's been a long time coming. Maybe for us, it's maybe for us reading, it's only been a few weeks, but for the Israelites, it has been a long time coming. You know, there was a point in time where they were living in Egypt and they were living in peace, but then all of a sudden, along came bondage and suffering, slavery. And God, seeing all of this, had concern for his people. He was worried for his people. He had genuine concern for what was happening. And so he tells Moses, Moses, I'm going to do a couple of things. The first thing is I'm going to take my people out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of Egypt. And the second thing I'm going to do is I'm going to deliver them into a land that I have promised them. And this morning we come to the kind of conclusion of this first part. And it's been a long time coming. And it took a lot for us to get to where we're at. It took the hand of God against Pharaoh. It took plague after plague after plague. It took powerful display after powerful display to get Pharaoh to say, all right, you guys can go. Take your men, your women, your children, your livestock and go. We went through the plagues last week, and as we recall, we talked about how the plagues demonstrate that God is ultimately in control of everything, of every situation, of every circumstance. God is in control There's nothing that happens that is not within God's control. And whatever is allowed, it's all under God's control. And this morning, now we see, again, this kind of conclusion, this kind of epic ending, not really ending, but this epic uh, display that leads us from one promise to the next. And I made the comment last week, and I again this week. I love these Old Testament stories because in these Old Testament stories we get reminders that so often we forget. And I think in our text this morning we see two reminders but then we have to ask a question how will we respond to these reminders. And so uh, we're going to go ahead and jump in to Exodus chapter 12 and we're going to start in verse 31. And it says this. It says, During the night Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up! Leave my people, you and the Israelites, go. Worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said, and go, and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold for clothing and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. And so after the events last week with the plagues, we continue uh, this morning, and we see Pharaoh call uh, Moses and Aaron to him, and he says, okay, go. After the death of the firstborn son for each of these people, okay, you've made your point, you can go. And he asked for them to bless him as they go. You see, he would rather ask for a blessing from God than to be under the plagues any longer. Ask your God 
to bless me because I no longer want to live under what has happened, all these things that would rather be blessed by a God that really I don't even believe in than live another day in these conditions. And so they go. And we see that the Egyptians are technically rushing them out the door. Go, go, get out of here. Get your stuff and go. Stop hanging around. Don't, you know, don't wait any longer. Just go. You know, they're afraid if we keep these people here any longer, we're all going to die. And so go, get your stuff and get out of here. Uh, you know, sometimes like a parent rushing their kid out the door right before they go to school. Go, get out of here. So go. And it says that they're rushing them out so fast that they have unleavened bread dough with them that they can't take the time to bake because they have to get out of there. So they put it in these troughs and wrap it in clothing, you know, carry it over their shoulder and go. They've got to go. And tells us here that the Israelites did as Moses had asked them to do to go before the Egyptians and ask for silver and gold and clothing because the Lord had made the Egyptians disposed towards the Israelites. We see this before we get to our text. Exodus 3, 21 through reminds us, and I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman and neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, plunder the Egyptians. Exodus 11.3, the Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. And so not only now are they being uh, okayed to go, not only now are they being rushed out, but they are also taking along with them silver and gold and clothing from the Egyptians. They're leaving in fine clothing. They're leaving with silver and gold. Not only is God rescuing his people, but he is blessing his people as they leave. And this is a promise that God had made to Abraham in Genesis 15, fulfilled. 13 through 14, it tells us, Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possessions. God is doing everything he said he would do and it's being fulfilled here. And then we continue to verse 37. And it says, The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Many other people went up with them, and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough the Israelites had brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to this very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. And this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. And so we see they begin their journey, and it tells us that there were 600,000 men on foot. Exodus 38:26 and Numbers chapter 146 actually give us a different number. They say 603,500. It's likely that the number we get here in Exodus 12 is an estimate, while later numbers were probably the more accurate numbers. And we see that between the men and women and children, it's likely two million Israelites left Egypt. 
two million Israelite people altogether left Egypt on this day. And something I think is interesting that I never really even noticed before all the times that I've read this is it says it wasn't just the Israelites who left, it said there were other people who left with them. It doesn't tell us who it was, but they just got a couple of extra people to go with them, and I imagine it had something to do with, man, look at what has happened to our nation with all of these plagues. I'm just going to go ahead and get out of here as well. And so uh, we see they take some extra people with them. And now we come to a question that has been asked. How long exactly were the people in Egypt? Because all throughout Scripture, we see different numbers. In our text, it says 430 years. Galatians 3.17 says this as well, when it says, What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. In other Scriptures, like Genesis 15.13, as we read earlier, it said 400 years. In Acts 7.6, Stephen says something similar. He says, God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. He's recapping what was said. And then, Acts 13, it says it was 450 years that they were in captivity. Acts 13.20, all... All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. So which was it? Is it a contradiction? Is it, you know, them not being clear? What's the, the case here? Why is there so many different numbers being mentioned? Well, I can tell you it's not a contradiction, and I think it's just uh, different numbers added up in different opinions to talk about what the case was. 400 years. Why does it say 400 years was the number of years the Israelites were actually in bondage and slavery. 430 years was 400 years of slavery plus 30 years of peace in Egypt beforehand. 450, well this is likely the 400 years plus 40 years of wandering in the wilderness plus 10 years on their way for conquest of Canaan. And so it's uh, not any contradictions, it's just different people uh, adding different numbers for different explanations for how long the people were in Egypt. But what I think is neat here is what it says at the end of our text here where it's this vigil, or the vigil. There's this vigil that the Lord has kept for his people, a vigil is a period of keeping awake during the time usually spent asleep, especially to keep watch or pray. That's how it's defined. We know that our God is not asleep on us, that God is always present, ever knowing, seeing what is going on everywhere. But how comforting it must have been for his people on this evening. How comforting to know that in the midst of this exodus, in the midst of them leaving, God was present with them. God was there as they went, them, protecting them, guiding them, leading them, present. How, or how comforting should that be for us, knowing that today we have a God who goes before us and who keeps watch over us and is with us and is ever current, ever present in our lives. And so here's our reminder this morning, and it's this. God is faithful. God is faithful, is he not? God is doing exactly what he said he was going to do. He told us that he called Moses. He says, I'm going to bring my people out of Egypt, and I'm going to bring them into the promised land. Well, he's starting, or he's done this first thing. He's bringing them out of Egypt. 
Last week we talked about the fact that God is in control and I think our text this morning reminds us that God is faithful in his promises. He is faithful in his promises. He is faithful in his plans. He is faithful in whatever he calls us to. He is faithful in all these things. When he says he's going to do something, he does it. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't change his plans. He remains faithful in everything he says. He delivered his people out of the hands of Egypt from their bondage in the same way through Jesus Christ. A bridge has been made for us to come back to him just as he promised there would be. He is a faithful God. Deuteronomy 7, 9 reminds us, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Psalm 119, 89 tells us, Your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You establish the earth and it endures. You see, God does not deviate from his plan, his purposes, or his promises. He is faithful, and he is faithful even when it doesn't feel like it. He is faithful when the road is tough. He is faithful when the road is good. He is faithful when we are struggling. He is faithful when we are happy and when things seem to be going well. He is faithful in all things at all times. And so he is faithful. Now we're going to flip over to Exodus 13. Exodus 13, 17. And so we've seen the exodus, and now we see a continuation of this in one of the most monumental, one of the most well-known stories in all of Scripture, one of the biggest displays of God's power in Scripture. And so we're at start in verse 17. It says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road through the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. And so right here, right away, we see that God is not going to lead his people through the Philistine country. Instead, he's going to lead the people around the desert road toward the Red Sea. The road through Philistine country would have taken them in the direction of Beersheba and then Negeb. This led along the and see, and it was a military road used by the Egyptians. And so God instead directs them down a desert road. The road, it's not mentioned, but it's believed that this led them down a location known as the Bitter Lakes. There should be a picture right where that red dot is, right around where the Bitter Lakes would have been. And you see, what's amazing here is that he had a reason for this. He always does, has a reason for everything he does, and he does what he does here because he knows that if they go down the easy road, if they take the easy road that will get them where they want to go quicker, there's a good chance that they could meet the Egyptian soldiers there and go to war. And God says if they taste war, if they experience war, then they may start in their head to say, let's turn around and go back to Egypt. 
Let's just go back to Egypt. And God is saying, no, I, I don't want this to happen. And so he's going to direct them around the long way so they don't get that taste of war and they don't start to yearn to be back where they were. And they doesn't, he doesn't want them to desire to just turn around. Also here we see a fulfillment of a promise that was made to Joseph. In Genesis chapter 50, 24 through 25, we see this. It says, Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land promised and on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. And after some time in Succoth, they traveled to Etham. And it tells us that the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way by day and a pillar of fire to give them light at night and that the pillar never left its place in front of them. This pillar of cloud that would guide them, direct them, show them where they're supposed to go, this pillar of fire to light their way as they go forward. Imagine the sight of that. I can't imagine what it must have been and this pillar is a reminder of faithfulness that we talked about, a sign that he was with them, that he would continue to be with them, that no matter where they would go, he would be with them. This promise is true today, that he is with us, that he goes before us and guides us. In Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 through 6, he's taught, the writer of Hebrews is talking about being content. And listen to what he says. He says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we may say with confidence, the Lord is my God. to me. God is with us. God is before us. He never leaves us, never forsakes us. And we go into chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Haroth, between Migdal and the sea, there to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Bel-Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. And so God appears to Moses and he gives him this command. This is what I want you to do. I want you to turn around and I want you to go and camp near Pi-Haroth. And his reason for this is that Pharaoh to believe, what in the world are these people doing? What are they doing? They're wandering around. They look lost. They look like they're just going all over the place. What's happening here? All right, let's see if I can do this. Turn pages with one hand. All right. And so, really, what's happening here is that God is springing a trap. You see, God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And in doing so, the Pharaoh is going to think, oh, man, these people are being crazy. They're lost. They're wandering around in confusion, not knowing what to do. And yet, God's setting a trap. He's setting a plan. And again, the people will see who God is. They'll see his power. They'll see his might. They'll see his strength. And they will know who he is. We continue back in our text in verse 5. It says, When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. 
So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with the officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he had pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Haroth, opposite Bel-Zephon. So now here in our story, we bounce back to Pharaoh. We've been talking about this exodus. We've been talking about uh, everything that's been happening. And now we go back to Pharaoh. And you see Pharaoh and his officials, they realize what they lose by losing all of these people. They lose their servants. They lose their workers. And so what do they do? They go after them because they have need for them. And even though there were 600,000 Israelite men, they seemed indecisive. They seemed like they were wandering around and were confused. But this always has led to the question, why did Pharaoh wait so long? Why did Pharaoh wait so long to go after these people? He knew they were gone. He knew they were leaving. Why did he wait so long? He could have just automatically said, nope, I'm not going to do this now, and gone and got them. But he takes a little bit of time. Well, Numbers 33, 3 through 4 reminds us. It says, The Israelites set out from Ramesses on the 15th day of the first month, the day after the Passover. They marched out defiantly in full view of all the Egyptians who were burying all the firstborn whom the Lord had struck down among them. For the Lord had brought judgment on their gods. Think about it. They're still dealing with grief. They're still dealing with the mourning period, the, the burial of all these firstborn sons. Also, remember what Pharaoh had been told by Moses over and over and over again. It's what Moses was told in Exodus 3.18, the elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Exodus 5.3, then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with the plagues or with the sword. Exodus 8.27, we must take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as he commands us. Do you notice a pattern here? What was Pharaoh under the impression of? They were going to be gone for three days to offer sacrifices. I think it maybe clicks in his brain or he realizes these people aren't going to be gone for three days. It's been past three days. And so, what does Pharaoh do? When he realizes this, he gives the order to chase them, and they take 600 of the best chariots along with other chariots and officers with them, and they go after them. You see, normally a chariot would have one driver and an archer. This time, there's a driver, archer, and an officer in each one. Also at this time, it would be common for the king to lead his army out of the city a short distance and then fall back to his palace while they would go on ahead. This leads some people to believe that Pharaoh probably wasn't actually included when they tried to overtake the Israelites. It's possible that Pharaoh went back. But we continue on in verse 10. It says, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. 
And it says, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And here now we find a group of very terrified and confused Israelites. They start asking Moses, what's the deal, Moses? What's going on here? Was there not any graves in Egypt that you had to take us out here so that we could die and be buried here? Was that your plan? Didn't we tell you at one point, just leave us alone? You're making things worse. You're making things horrible for us. Just please leave us alone. Just give this whole thing up. Wouldn't it have been better to go back and be servants and have our life? You see, even after all that God has done in their lives, all the signs, all the things that God has done, their human nature kicks back in, and they react the same way that if we were all to be honest, we would probably react as well. And they cry out to the Lord, and yet they lack confidence that God would actually do anything. They lack the confidence that God would actually do what he says he was going to do. But Moses answers them and tells them, hey, stand firm. You will never see these Egyptians again after today. You'll never see them again. This is it. This is the last moment you'll see them. Because the Lord is going to deliver you. He's going to fight for you. You just have to be still. You see, I think that this is something that we forget too often today, don't we? That the Lord fights for us. How often do we let anxiety, panic, fear drag us down? It's always nice to remember that in the tough times, we have a God who fights for us. We have a God who fights for us, a God that we can lean on for his strength, knowing that he fights for us. Nehemiah 4.20 says, wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. Psalm 35.1, contend, Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Our Lord fights for us. But what we see next here is a seems like a gentle rebuke, a gentle rebuke from God to Moses. Why are you calling out to me? Tell the people to go forward. All Moses has to do is raise his staff over the water and the waters would part. The Egyptians would foolishly chase after them. They had everything they already needed. They had everything they needed. All they had to do was go. And it seems like Moses, even in his mind, is asking God, what do I do? And we see this gentle rebuke. Quit calling out to me. Tell them to go. Just do what I tell you. And that's what we come to in verse 19. It says, And the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them. Coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. 
And so the angel of God appears, says the angel of God, it could be a theophany, it could be an angelic messenger, and he moves from out in front of the Israelites to behind them to protect the people from the charging Egyptians. We see see the pillar of cloud also moved behind the Israelites. This is important because it brings about such darkness that it prevents the Egyptians from being able to attack, to even see them, to do anything that evening. And here we come to one of the most well-known, most important moments in the history of Scripture. This is a moment that the Israelites will be able to look back to and say that God was present and did exactly what he said he would do. This is a moment that they would be able to look back to and remember the power of God at work and in display. Moses stretches his hand over the sea, and God drives the sea back with a strong east wind that brings about dry ground. Water walled up to the left and to the right. The size of the path is not known, but it does appear that it wouldn't have been a single-file line. Imagine that if they had to all line up single-file and march through. It might have taken a while. It appears that the pathway was big enough for everyone to walk at the same time. You see, we know, like everything else in Scripture, that there are those who want to say that this is fictitious. It's a good story, but it never really happened an east wind so big as to part the sea, that's not possible. And what's amazing, those studies have been done that show this is a very real thing. In his book, Between Migdal and the Sea, Crossing the Red Sea with Faith and Science, Carl Drews put together an experiment. He put science behind the events of the Exodus and backed his research up with computer modeling and weather and wind simulations, showing how an atmospheric event big enough could actually cause the parting of such a significant body of water. Drews points out that other times this has occurred. The Nile Delta just over 100 years ago did the same thing. Drews concluded that according to his own model, Moses and the Israelites would have had four hours to cross the four-kilometer stretch ample time for them to get across. There was also a senior researcher at St. Petersburg Institute named Naum Volsinger, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, and Alexei Androff, I hope I'm pronouncing that right as well, colleague of his, this person, they are both in oceanography, and they analyzed conditions that could have made the parting of the Red Sea possible. They calculated that a wind blowing at the speed of 67 miles per hour sustained overnight could have exposed a reef that existed close below the ocean surface. The Israelites could have then fled over the passage before the wind died down and waters rose again, blocking the way for pursuing the Egyptian soldiers and their willed chariots. And so these are great examples of how science can back up these big events, that science can prove that these things happen. But you notice these explanations are missing one very key important thing, the supernatural power of God. The supernatural power of God, this divine intervention, this divine uh, situation that takes place here. Another question that's brought up here is, where exactly did they cross? Was it the Red Sea, or was it a different body of water, possibly a marshy area with a shallow lake? You know, there are beliefs that it wasn't necessarily the Red Sea, but instead, there's a Hebrew word, and this Hebrew word is suf, S-U-P-H. The root word is thought to be of Egyptian origin, and it meant reed, And so if you put these together with the Hebrew phrase, yam suf, it could be translated as sea of reeds or the reed sea. And so people ask, what exactly was being crossed? Was it the Red Sea or was it the reed sea? 
Well, when we look at various passages of scripture where the term yam suf is used, it becomes clear that it's referring to a body of water that is large. The waters were divided, and as they went through the sea on dry ground, it said a wall of water on their right and on their left. For there to be a wall of water on each side would have to suggest depth. It would have to suggest a big depth for it to be walled up on each side. And so anytime this is used, this phrase is used, it appears to be a deep water. It had to be deep water, and it had to be deep enough to destroy an entire army, as we'll see in just a bit. Also, in support of the idea that it was the Red Sea that was crossed in the Greek Septuagint, which is the earliest translation of the Hebrew Bible, whenever you see these words yam suf translated in the Greek, it's translated as Red Sea. Every time you see this word used, these words used in the New Testament, it's referring to Red Sea. When it translates it in a smaller word, there's different words they use, but it's never these words used. It's always defined as Red Sea. And so here we can be certain, we can be confident that this wasn't just a reed sea, it wasn't just a shallow water, it wasn't just a marshy area that they were able to cross easy. No, this was a powerful display as they crossed the Red Sea. We continue in verse 23. It says, The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And at daybreak, the sea went, out, went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it. And the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and Moses, and his, or Moses, his servant. And so in the morning watch here, we see the Egyptians start pursuing the Israelites. We see that the Lord, who is keeping watch, throws the Egyptian armies into confusion. He jams the wheels of the chariot. Something interesting here, I think, is to look at Psalm 77, 16 through 19, and it describes what took place. It says, the water saw you, God. The water saw you and writhered. The very depths were convulsed. The, crowd, or the clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. All of these things, this intense thunderstorm, the, the lightning, the earthquake, all of these things would have played into confusing the people, and it would have pointed out that God is, in fact, on the side of the Israelites, that God is, in fact, fighting for them. And the Lord tells Moses, now stretch out your hand over the water so that the water would flow back over the Egyptians. At daybreak, Moses does this, and it happens just as the Lord told him it would. 
the sea went back to place. All the Egyptians who followed after the Israelites were swallowed up by the sea. There were no survivors. No survivors. And then our text ends with this. In his mercy, God had brought the people out of bondage. They looked and they saw the dead Egyptians on the shore and they knew that God had done this. They knew that the Lord, his hand had struck the Egyptians. It says that they feared the Lord and they put their trust in him. They've gone from fear to trust. As we'll see later and throughout the scripture, that trust is not really consistent with the Israelites. But I think our next reminder comes here. And I think it's a very big idea and a very big reminder that's played all throughout this text. And it's this, we need to trust God. We need to trust God. This text is actually a master class in what it means to trust God. All throughout the story of the crossing of the Red Sea, it's all, in, all about trusting in him. And we need to do this, right? We need to trust God. Our mindset should actually be that of David who writes these words in Psalm 143, 8, Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love, for I have put my trust in you. Show me the way I should go, for to you I entrust my life. But you see, here's the thing. It's one thing to say we will trust God. It's another thing to do it. It's another thing. It's easy to say, God, I will trust you. But it's really quite difficult when we try to actually do it. And so this morning, I have some questions. And I have some questions that I want us to ask ourselves and to think about. Question number one, will we trust God when the road is undesirable? Will we trust God when the road is undesirable? Up to this point, the road for the Israelites has been undesirable. This isn't what they wanted. They didn't want to be, as much as they say it, I think deep down, they really they didn't want to be in bondage. They didn't want to be in slavery. Their life, their work was difficult. Here we see that instead of them going down the easy road, they're led around, but God was taking care of it. But you see, it's in our nature, isn't it, to want the easy road? Isn't it? We want the path of least resistance. We want to take the road that gives us all of our hopes, our desires, our pleasures, our dreams. We want that road. That road is easy. That road is the road that I want. I don't want a difficult road. Sarah Walton and an article for Desiring God said it this way, left to ourselves, we would all choose a path of comfort and prosperity because our hearts are rebellious and our vision is short-term. If not for his grace, we would pursue only what our flesh desires, even at the cost of eternal life. You see, here's the deal. Sometimes for some, life doesn't seem as complicated. For some, life doesn't seem quite as difficult, but that's not always gonna be the path that our life takes. Sometimes our life is filled with pain and heartbreak and setbacks. But the question is, in those moments, are we willing to trust God? Are we willing to trust that he's going to take those moments, those situations, those difficulties, and use them for not only our good, but for the good of others? Are we going to trust that he is going to lead us through these winding roads and these difficult situations? Is he going to do what Paul says that he will do in Romans 8.28? And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You see, I quoted Sarah Walton earlier in her article for Desiring God. I mean, I want to read something that she wrote in this article. When I was, read it the first time, I got choked up. I thought it was a very powerful statement. This is what she says. 
She says, even as I write this, I sit in an IV treatment room with a handful of others whom I would never have met had our lives not crossed on the weary road of chronic illness. When I began treatment, I had hoped to take advantage of the several hours I would have each day to rest, read, and enjoy the unusual moments of quiet. However, I quickly realized that this would not be the case. Listening to the stories of suffering and brokenness in the chairs beside me, the reality struck me that though I am suffering immensely, I have the hope of the gospel. This means in Christ, I can be confident that God will be with me and provide all that I need to bring glory to him. God placed me in a room for seven straight weeks with those who were suffering, lost, and grasping for any reason to keep going, not even realizing that they are facing an eternity that is far worse than their earthly pain. Though it was tempting to put my headphones on and tune them out, I had been given a unique opportunity to allow God to use my pain and the lives of those who have been intersected with mine in this IV room. I could either let myself be consumed with my own pain or trust that God has me in this place at this time for his eternal purpose. Each day, God increasingly took my eyes off of my own situation, gave me a love for these strangers, and opened up several opportunities to share the hope of the gospel. You see, the paths we walk are not always going to be the same as others, and sometimes the paths we walk are not going to be the ones we desire for ourselves. They're not going to be the ones that we wanted. But will we trust him? Question two, will we trust God when it doesn't make sense? Will we trust God even when it doesn't make sense? And sometimes it just seems like these things don't make sense, right? Why harden the heart of Pharaoh? Or harden the heart of Pharaoh? Why harden the heart of the Egyptians? Why send them after the people when they were cleared to go? Why do all of these? Why not just get rid of Pharaoh from the very beginning and get your people out of there? Why do this? Why do this? Sometimes it seems like the things that God allows, it just doesn't make sense to us. Why am I going through this? Why am I struggling with this? Why is this happening to me? Why is this feel out of whack in my life? God, why is all of these things, why are they happening to me? In those moments where things don't make sense, are we willing to trust God? In those moments where we're confused and we're trying to figure out what God is doing, will we remember that God is in control? Will we trust him? Remember what the scripture says, Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. You see, we don't always know what God is working, and we don't know what God is orchestrating, and we don't know what he's planning, and we don't know what he's doing, and sometimes it seems confusing, and sometimes it seems like it doesn't make sense, and sometimes we're just wondering, God, why, 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 why? But will we trust him? John Piper puts it like this. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may only be aware of three of them. Not only may you see a teeny fraction of what God is doing in your life, the part you do see may not even make sense to you. We don't know what God is doing or working or orchestrating in our lives, and sometimes it may confuse us and we may not understand it, but will we trust him? Question three, will we trust God with our needs? Will we trust God with our needs? You see, God knew exactly what his people needed. They needed protection. They needed uh, rescue. They needed strength. They needed all of these things, and he provided all of those things. And today, God provides for us the things that we need. 
And that's the key word, isn't it? Needs. Not wants, needs. And you see, so often we confuse those two things, and if God doesn't give us what we want, then that means that God has left us stranded, or stranded and abandoned. And worse, we try to figure out, okay, God, you're no longer present in my life because you didn't give me what I wanted, and so I'm going to have to try to figure out how to get the things I need for myself. And there's a ton of things that I could say here, but I think Jesus says it best. In Luke 12, 22 through 31, then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wild flowers grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. And we spend so much time living anxiously, stressing about life, instead of trusting in his ability to provide for us. And I can tell so many stories over and over again in moments of my life where I thought, I have no idea what I'm possibly going to do in this situation. And I never realized that what I needed to do instead was say, God, just take it. Take it and, and provide and do what only you can do. And I love how Billy Graham says it. We can be certain that God will give us the strength and resources we need to live through any situation in life that he ordains. The will of God will never take us where the grace of God cannot sustain us. Will we trust God to provide for our needs? Will we trust him? Will we trust him in all things? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And as they do, I can tell you this morning with certainty, we have all the reasons in the world to trust him. We do. He provides. He guides. He protects. When times are hard, he leads us through. When we are confused about his will, we know that he is working things out for our good. And we know that we have to lean on his understanding. When we are in need, he provides for us. And what truer statement than the fact that, you see, the Israelites, they needed something. They needed something big. What did they need? They needed salvation. They needed salvation from the hands of the Egyptians. They needed salvation from their suffering and their pain and the things they were going through. They needed rescue. They needed salvation from their bondage. And guess what? We too need salvation. We too need salvation. We need salvation from our sin. We need rescue from our sin. And guess what? Just as God provided what they needed, God has provided for us what we need. Romans 6, 22 through 23. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This morning, you can put your trust in him.
you can put your faith in him, knowing that there are thousands and thousands of reasons to put our faith in him, but none more so than this, that he cared so much to send his son to die for us so that we could be forgiven. So if you've never made that decision, you can write it on the connect cards. I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to pray with you this morning. Or maybe you're here and you're just, your trust has been fading. Maybe it's the long, hard, difficult road you've been going down. Maybe it's the tough situations you've been facing. Maybe it's the things that have just been beating on you and you're starting to feel like, God, I can't trust you. And maybe this morning what you need to do is you need to look back at all the reasons we have to trust. His guidance, his protection, his leading, his meeting our needs, all of these things that God has provided for us. And so maybe what you need to do this morning is just pour your heart out to him. Spend some time in prayer. You can do that where you're sitting. If you need to pray, I'd love to pray with you. Man, God is faithful. God is faithful in everything, in his promises, in his plans, in his purpose. He is faithful, and he is worth our trust. And so will we trust him? Will we trust him when the road is undesirable? Will we trust him when it doesn't make sense? We trust him with our needs. He is worth our trust. He has proved his love. He has proved everything. He is worth trusting. And so this morning, if you're here and you have a decision to make, I pray that you do so as we stand and we sing.